Welcome back to Hidden Grief, a podcast about the myriad ways grief operates in our daily lives. My name is Saran Sidime, and I'm excited to finally kick off the season. I know it's been a while since we released our pilot, but I promise you it was worth the wait. In each episode, we'll explore a different kind of hidden grief. Today, we're discussing the hidden grief of racial trauma. For we who are dark, there is no grief like the grief of habitual disregard. It is infuriating, disheartening, and so disorienting. Grief and rage are appropriate responses in the face of cruelty and oppression. But how do we make sure our rage doesn't consume us? How do we hold our grief while decolonizing our minds? Dr. Jennifer Mullen, also known as the Rage Doctor, has some thoughts. Dr. Mullen is a psychologist, teacher, writer, and the curator behind the popular Instagram account, Decolonizing Therapy. She creates spaces for people and organizations to heal. Dr. Mullen believes that it is essential to create dialogue to address how mental health is deeply impacted by systemic inequities and the trauma of oppression particularly the well-being of queer, indigenous, black, brown people of color. I can't think of a better person to help us honor our rage, even when we are afraid of it. We're so excited to have you on the Hidden Grief Podcast, Dr. Millen. It is such a joy. I'm so excited about this conversation. Tell us about you. Who is Dr. Jennifer Millen? Ooh, that's probably the hardest question ever, right? (laughs) Well, number one, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And thank you for this work, Saran, like hidden grief. Oh, where do we begin, right? There's so much in grief that's hidden, but I'm going to introduce myself before we get into that. But I just want to say your work is necessary. Your voice is necessary in this world. And for you as a Black person to be talking about grief, I think is revolutionary and is very vital. We need it. Yeah. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So yes, my pronouns are she, her, and hers. Um, I am a cisgendered, fluid identifying and queer identified as well as I'm trained as a clinical psychologist. Although these days I'm not practicing as a clinical psychologist, more of my work is teaching and writing and holding space. And I feel like I'm moving from a place of treatment in therapy and psychology to healing and wellness. And so although, yeah, for all intensive purposes, yes, I'm a psychologist, right? But that's like a small bit of what I do and who I am, if that that makes sense. And so part of what doesn't work for me anymore, and I say this with so much love because I know how important therapy is and counseling and all these different forms of holding space for people, I'm for it. However, as you probably know, for anyone following decolonizing therapy, part of my work is also lovingly examining the lens in which we still do healing. Somebody has been do- who'd been doing this work as a therapist for the last 20 years, literally, I have been harmed and have harmed before I had a true analysis, before I understood, you know, also like checking off Am I, am I being a good enough therapist? Quote, unquote, I'm doing air quotes right now. You know, am I following the rules? Am I sharing too much about myself? Am I making this too political? 
Am I asking too much about their ancestry? This is one what I was taught, right? I was taught A, B, C, D, E, F, G to keep yourself like a blank slate. But in working in communities that mirror my own identities as a woman of color, as a, as a, as a light-skinned black woman, as a as a multiracial, my mom's side of the family comes from Panama, and so there is so much there related to this need for connection. There's so much there related to a need of like, oh, like, who are you? I kind of need to feel out who you are and what you believe before I start trusting you, Dr. Jen. You know, and some of my students wouldn't exactly say that. Some of them would, right? Some of them would come in like, uh, no shade. You seem cute. Literally, these are like true words, right? (laughs) (laughs) You're cute, but who are you? (laughs) Right. Right, Sarada, right? Like literally, this is like one of my favorite people ever. We worked together for like three and a half years, but there was they were like 19 and a half. They came in looking adorable, like cute little setup, tie-dye. They're like before tie-dye was the thing. And they're like, uh, you seem cute. I think I dig you, but I need to know what is your sun sign? Do you know what your rising sign is? And I'm sitting there like, I am so honored blown away and deeply digging where current youth and those coming up, like where they're going with things, right? And their level of analysis. And so having worked in a university setting for over 12 years, working at partial care hospitals, residentials, you name it, right? Like I did everything that psychology and counseling told me to do. And I still didn't feel it wasn't enough. There was so much missing, particularly related to the conversations around race, structural violence, particularly around conversations related to disenfranchised grief. Hello, Hidden Grief Podcast, particularly around conversations related to sacred or righteous rage, right? Not not acting out and blowing and hurting people and, you know, shooting up schools, but like how do we actively deal with this grief rage dynamic that may reside in our bodies and in our emotions. And so I also want to say, yeah, like, like I grew up in the inner city and I grew up in the community in which I served and continue to organize in and I continue, well, I can't afford to live in it anymore because of gentrification, but I do my best in in the bit of the community that is still there. And so decolonizing therapy began as simply me feeling really alone as somebody who was providing mental health and mental care. Feeling like, hey, does anyone out here feel like there's something that's not completely on task? Does anyone else here feel like we're like gaslighting clients? Like by, you know, talking about, yeah, like what's going on with us? And of course we have to take responsibility. Of course we need to shift our perspectives. Of course, you know, we need to look at some of our programming, but are we ever going to help hold accountable these systems that are responsible for some of the ways that we see ourselves, that are responsible for the imposter syndrome, quote unquote, that we continue to feel, responsible for the violence on our bodies or the bodies of our kin, right? Whether Asian, black identified, the diaspora, melanated peoples, queer peoples, like disabled bodies, right? Like, are we ever gonna talk about why we don't feel so safe and why it takes so much work and effort to, to show up some days? Yeah, that's why I do what I do. Yeah. But, you know, you actually talked about your Instagram account, Decolonizing Therapy, which is how I actually learned about you and your work. Talk to us about that. I know you said a little bit because it is such a beautiful curation of meaningful decolonizing tips for people who are interested in wellness. So I'd just love to hear you talk about the inspiration behind that. 
Well, honestly, the inspiration will always be, and this is not lip service, this is not being cheesy in any way, two part, always like the, the people, the students, the individuals that I was serving, always, always, I, I've just been so fortified and blown away by our strength. Every time I thought I've heard it all, felt it all, seen it all, some other little person comes in and eventually when they're ready and if the time is right, start sharing things that I'm like, wow, we're still here. And sometimes I just stop and say that. Sometimes I stop purposely and just, and you're still here. Thank you for being here. And so I want to say that to everybody that's listening, like, Thank you, despite your grief, despite your trauma histories, despite your ancestral, you know, violence that has happened on your bodies, or despite the violence that you have enacted on others consciously or not, historically or not, right? Like, thank you for being here and showing up for yourself and for each other. And so I'm also a feeler. I'm an empath. It took me a lot of years. Yeah. (laughs) You too? Girl, I see you. <laughs> That's all I'm going to say. Thank you. I see you too. I see you too. Yes. As someone who is very intuitive, who was very spiritual, which again, I felt was very quote unquote separate from my work as a therapist at the time, right? Even though I went to a very Buddhist identified school, because I was very, very, very Buddhist at the time in my in my late 20s. I am not there anymore for the record. <laughs> my late 20s. But um, as much as I hold and love the tenets of Buddhism, right? And I, and I do see myself as a spiritualist. The reality is they were never talking about it. They never talked about like how to protect our energetic boundaries, how to make sure that maybe things are working through us as somebody who my feel energy or some people hear things, right? That are not part of the DSM and diagnostic, right? Some of us, sometimes I would feel presence and I'm being real, I'm like outing myself here, right? Like part of why I say I don't always practice anymore as a clinical psychologist because they would rip any kind of licensings and things away from me anyway. I say this to say that, you know, there's times I've sat in sessions with people and I would feel like this cold chill and all of a sudden I just feel like they're great, 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 great grandmother saying like, no, ask about that. You know, so sometimes I'm like, whoa, okay. And then telling some of my closest colleagues, like, do y'all need to assess me? Like, what? <laughs> like, what is happening? And then my another friend who's not even spiritual would say, listen, you know that I'm an atheist. However, mm-hmm. this and this and this has happened to me before in sessions. And so I feel like there's something about the process of, you know, holding space for someone else's grief, their shadows, their pain, their loss that can bring up the other, right? This otherness around like family and ancestry and ways of knowing. And there's times where I've sat in sessions with people and felt like, you know what? Would you like to get on the floor and draw with me? Let's draw a trauma timeline. Let's look at your timeline as well as who helped you heal, right? Who pulled you out of those dark depths? But let's say five years old, there was this kind of abuse. How'd you get out of that? Basketball, maybe a basketball coach that never knew that they, they quote unquote saved you. Okay, and so mom, do you have any idea what happened to your mom? Do you have any idea what happened to your people in Kenya? Let's timeline, let's draw, let's play. Let's. And there's times where people would look at me like, uh, you sure I shouldn't just talk about it? I'm like, do you want to just talk about it? They're like, no, I want to like let it out in other ways. And, and and then I started learning that trauma, you can't just keep talking about it. There's other ways that it needs to come out of our bodies because it happens sometimes to our, diff- our levels of body. 
so that decolonizing therapy a was always for the i don't know hundreds thousands of people that i've held space for particularly my groups there was a peer education group who were still like family that i helped facilitate for the last 12 years and that i was a part of in undergrad called peers educating peers out of our university and little did we know here are like inner city hood kids that are like i'm not going to therapy Right? Like I would say like, I don't, I don't have problems. I'm not going to therapy. I was like 19, 20 year old Jen that was like chip on my shoulder, ready to argue with everybody, but really found respite in school, found a respite in learning and in writing and discussing ideas and, you know, and like being around other people where, you know, we were in it together. Right. And so in that way, although the, the school system can be very harmful in that way, it brought some healing to me. It let me show up for myself and for others. And, and so this peer ed group, little did we know we were doing like essentially group therapy every Wednesday. And little do we know we were essentially doing individual and we would have retreats and that's what I would provide. And so in these retreats, a whole weekend at the ocean and some of my students had never been to the ocean, had never left a concrete jungle. We would be together and we would have dinner and breakfast together. We would do a check-in question and they'd be like, I'm not used to this. I want to just go eat up in my room. Right, my dear, because that's what you're used to. Let's let's come back home to family. Let's come back home to the circle, the way that our people originally, originally were in circles. And I started doing rage and grief retreats with them, right? Mirror work, writing or putting a picture of their parent or their grandparent or their foster parent on there screaming, raging, of course, with, with, the, with the container, right? And not, not out of nowhere, but, but this is trust being built up over the years. And because of showing some of our shadow, ugliest sides to each other, I think we've just gotten closer. And so they were the first ones to be like, no, what are we, what are we doing? We're, we're decolonizing together. And so Jen, we need you to like talk about this. And I think that the other piece, and it's a very long answer, is like my own journey my own journey with rage, my own journey with deep grief. I was a person had a hard time feeling sad or feeling scared. I would say probably because of where I grew up, you know, I would be like, I don't, that doesn't affect me. But I had all this rage, like, ah. But I learned that they were like kind of two sides of each other, depending on who the person is. Some of us are more comfortable in the raging place and some of us drop into like a <gasps> grief place. And as we were saying before, Saran, like, you know, Eurocentric, you know, Western white America doesn't often see particularly black bodies or bigger bodies or, or, or disabled bodies, crippled bodies, right? Like do not see any of us as really holding grief and fear. And that's so important. And so part of my work really is also like, that's what I'm saying. It's about the community, but it's also selfish and like, Hey, anyone else there? Anyone else feel this? Right. And my first posts were truly like, even if just 15 people that love me like the post, that was going to be decolonizing therapy, right? Well, well now you've got close to 150,000, so. It's overwhelming. <laughs> it's overwhelming, yeah. Because, you know, I never signed up for it. I think that some people are like, oh, Insta therapist, Insta therapist. And I'm thinking, I'm just Jen. <laughs> like, I'm not trying to be an Insta therapist. I'm not trying to be on any magazine. Like, all I'm trying to do is remind therapists that therapy is not necessarily healing you know and we need to do some healing a of ourselves of our own ancestry of our own crap can I curse our own <laughs> our own stuff our own poop and 
We then need to look at how therapy can be at times very individualistic. And what would that look like to open it up more? What would it look like for it to be um, more relatable to all people? And let us remember that this mental health system has also harmed a lot of people, policed a lot of people, put away a lot of people, separated and segregated families, acculturate us, right? Forced us to migrate, help the prison systems, help the education systems to continue to diagnose and keep feeding. I'm not saying that all drugs are not necessary or pharmaceuticals, but it's certainly in droves. Right. And definitely, definitely continuing to pathologize and criminalize our younger black kids. Right. Our youth, oppositional defiant disorder, conduct disorder, who is getting all of these diagnoses. So when I'm talking about like the abolishment or the restructuring, the decolonizing of therapy, it's not just like a here you do this, then you do this, then you do this. It is it's a marathon right? Like Nipsey Hussle said, right? It's it's a marathon and it has to start with us. It has to start with therapists, social workers, psychiatrists, whoever, whatever we do, right? Peer counselors first looking at ourselves and doing our own unpacking and healing and looking at the ways that we've been colonized and how we colonize others. And we police each other. And then really taking the time to look at whether these systems are serving all of us And why are we so burned out? Why are we so exhausted? Why are we so tired? And are the mental health systems giving us enough of what we need in our education? Why are we not talking about the differences between feelings and emotions? Have any of us had a class on grief? Have any of us had a class on racial trauma outside of like diversity 101 and multicultural counseling? And I would teach multicultural counseling and I would tell my students, if you want like, bland, want multicultural counseling, you have to drop this course and take another. I would tell them this is anti-oppression, social justice, intersectionality 505 for therapists, right? Like this is not what you think. We're not going to do a cookbook approach and look at like unconscious bias. I know no shade, but you know, this isn't a DEI course. This is a course in this is what it's going to be. So um, yeah, that's how decolonizing therapy was founded. Dr. Mullen, I just want to pause for a second and go to that beach moment, right? Here you are, you take these these inner city kids to the beach and you're trying to have dinner and you have one kid who goes upstairs, right? And who says, no, I don't wanna do this. And you say, no, come home, come home to family, come home to the circle. And I'm thinking about that kind of tenderness that you're extending to this young Black person and how that kind of tenderness is so rare, right, in our public sphere, in society's perception of these children, because they are children, right? And the kind of softness that they're not allowed, that they're not seen as fragile too, vulnerable too, they're seen as angry, as if they didn't have a reason to be, right? But but, let's set that aside for a second. But that you're taking them to the beach and the thought alone that someone would spend their entire childhood without seeing the ocean. Mm. is To me, it's just like, that to me just hurts. (laughs) There's something about that 
that hurts. How are you not allowed to be a child? What systems are in place to keep you from being a child? Mm. Mm. You know what I'm saying? So that part for me, that's why we're, we're talking about this. You know, because I want to ask you about that, because one of the things that I love about you is that you call yourself the rage doctor. Right. And, and, and I just love that, because for me, I think you're right. Right. To say that some people have an easier like I know I have an easier time of grief than I do with rage, because I know that grief is something that is contained within my own body. Mm. Right. And I'm someone who's very concerned about harm. So anything that is externalized, I worry. I worry about what fires my, my, my rage will put, who it will harm, right? What things I will say that I will need to apologize for, you know, because really for me, that's work. You know what I mean? Like, because once it goes out there, then I got to like go and fix it. Like, oh, I'm sorry. But what I know though, and I've experienced about grief, even though it is internalized, I see how it is breaking and harming my relationships with certain people because the grief is too deep. And, you know, and if I'm in relationship with someone who isn't able to understand that or hold it, I back away. Right. Which creates that disconnection that the grief, the grief dis- creates the disconnection. I, I love you, you know, and as you're talking, I felt myself breathe. I felt my body breathe. You know, that's the thing that happens when people understand us, when they speak our language, right? Like when when we understand the minute you said, and I had to write it down. And if I ever utilize it, you know that I will be um, citing you. What systems are in place to keep you from being a child almost made me cry. Cause I don't know if I've ever heard it said in that level of poetry before. So thank you for that. And I'm going to answer the rage doctor question. And I also want to say to this is that is precisely what we were doing without realizing that that was what I was doing, right? That I was, I would tell them that after there was some time and they were more comfortable that we were reparenting, that we were reparenting. I would keep saying it, we are reparenting, right? But it's not Jen reparenting you, although you feel some type of way when I go away for vacation, we would have to talk about that with some students, right? People that are now like my dear sister friends, 10, 15 years ago when they were my students, you know, I would say, okay, I won't be here next week. I'm gonna be going away. Literally, you'd have like a 25 year old stomping and pouting and being like, well, clearly you don't care about us. Like, I know it's not all about us, but dang, you couldn't have given me two weeks notice. Like, like you, you could see the level of grief and the pain and, and I would simply hold it, you know, and, and there's pros and cons to that, right? Like there's pros and cons to holding what their parents couldn't, what their caregivers couldn't, right? And I think it brought us closer and all of them are my children. Like I don't have bio children. My children are like all of them. Like they already know, like as if I'm passing, they know what to do. They know the playlist. They know, like they know that they're the ones that have to take care of me. They're my children, but not in that way. I'm some of their four friends, but meaning that I help usher them into reparenting themselves. And that was the point and the goal that I could not be here tomorrow. Your therapist could not be here tomorrow. And you'll still know what it means to have community, to need to talk about your feelings, to address your grief, maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but to address it, to be with it. And the other thing that shows up for me, right, is like, 
at these retreats, like every morning I would say, we're going to go out and we're going to meditate on the beach. Anybody that wants to come, come, even if you've never meditated, that's perfectly okay. And at first it would be like four of them. And then the next, let's say if there was 18 people on the retreat, then it would be like 15 of them. And it was beautiful to see all of these like melanated bodies, right? Like in a circle together on a very white beach in Jersey Shore, <laughs> right? And people would like pass by and look, and this is early, early, right? It's usually not summertime, so it's not that packed, but you know, we have our coats on and sweaters and we're like holding hands and I'm leading them through a journey. And why I'm bringing this up is because that's what I feel like my work is, is to be a steward for tenderness, to be a steward for home, to be a steward for that grief and that rage. And so it's funny, I I tend to get a little like shy and I tend to like minimize myself. Some of that is my own trauma history, right? And how I grew up, like you, you too much, you're too much or not enough at the same time. And I think a lot of us identify with that, yeah. Right, I frequently felt like I was too much. I frequently feel like too much, even with relationships, right? Just always too much. And I think part of my work, right? Okay. <laughs> I just want to say, if part you're of- out there yes. listening, okay? <laughs> we see you, okay? You are not too much. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Back in 2018, 2017, you know, when this started and my Instagram started, I think maybe around 2019, when we were talking about decolonizing therapy, I got asked to do a keynote. And as I was talking and emoting and speaking a little bit about slavery and how it lands in our bodies. And I was talking a bit about my dissertation, which is all about intergenerational trauma and the soul wound in inner city African-American male youth. That was my dissertation back in 2012. And again, I was talking about intergenerational trauma before anybody really had too much of a interest in epigenetics or in understanding social theory and so on and so forth. And I'm talking about all of this and I'm talking about how what our ancestors had not been able to feel and show up for because they were so focused on survival, understandably, <laughs> right? Like feeding like feeding the family by the end of the week. My grandfather wasn't talking about like, how does that make you feel, Maria? So my mother, right? He was just like, okay, I brought home meat. This is gonna last for this. You're cleaning, you're gonna do this, you're gonna do that. You're gonna go to school because right, quote unquote, education was gonna be the end all be all and get us all free. And what was interesting is in this keynote as I'm talking and sharing, it wasn't part of the plan, but what ended up happening is I started talking about rage and my work with rage A is very personal. I was a very raging kid as, as calm, but raging when I felt other people were being hurt, when I had to protect others, right? When I felt like something wasn't fair, I would just like, or somebody pushed my limit way too many times. So what was interesting is I started talking about Ruth King's work and I highly recommend Healing Rage, uh, Women Making Inner Peace Possible. I'm still in contact with Ruth. She supports me continuing this work and expanding it. And I think that my expansion on it is around the ancestral piece to rage. That work and her retreat back in, oh my goodness, maybe 2007, 2008, when I first did it out in Berkeley, California, changed my life and allowed me to not feel quote unquote broken, bad, too messy, you know, angry person, right? Like, like, you know, we know the thing, oh, angry person of color, angry black woman, angry, you know, like it's too much, you're too much. And I say all this to say, 
that I understood that rage is the love child of shame and trauma. And I understood that sometimes rage wears disguises, right? And then that's where Ruth comes in in her book and she talks about the six disguises of rage. I talk about that often too. And one of them is depression. And so, and we don't mean depression per se clinically, right? Like we're not saying like, oh, you're clinically depressed, but depression in the sense of uh, maybe feeling like our voice is hindered, um, feeling maybe like we don't have the physical ability to move or do something or engage, feeling sad, forlorn, maybe crying, having this unresolved grief within us that feels like it's every single day we're feeling this grief. So I'm saying this to say that at this keynote, as I'm talking about rage and how, you know, our field just diagnoses and pathologizes rage, right? All of our fields. This one woman got up in the audience and said, say that rage doctor, say it. And I was like, what the? <laughs> you know, and every, and it, I'm not making this up. I wish I was because you know, I am ENFP, but as I'm getting older, I am like at the eye, like I'm close to an mm-hmm. eye. And so there's a part of me that just wants to shrink. And then three, four other people stood up and they were like, rage doctor. Yes, we anoint you. It was powerful. So powerful. Wow. That people were cheering. Some other women were giving testimony. Like, wow. I didn't expect whatever it is was coming out of me needed to be heard maybe. And I think that one of the things that maybe shifted people in the audience is that we get to take back our rage from whiteness, right? We get to take back that feeling that we're not good enough, that it's too much. Like just because I'm angry doesn't mean I'm going to harm people, right? (laughs) Just because I am shouting or or saying that's not fair, you don't get to do this, or this person gets to get have access to therapy, or they get to have access to healthcare without having a bill of $50,000. Like, of course, some of us are very angry. And of course, underneath that, for some, is a deep sorrow, is a deep pain, is a deep like, am I worth it? If I get treated like this all the time, am I worth it? Like, and, and you know, constantly I'm thinking of the parents that have to constantly tell their children, listen, if a cop comes to the school, I don't care what your lighter skin friends are doing. You cannot afford. And, and then I think about like how that connects to slavery all across our lands, countries, and islands, right? I think about the ways that colonization has breeded that disconnect to us and our bodies. And so that's how Rage Doctor came about. And one of my friends that saw the video was like, we're putting this in your bio. And I'm like, no, and she's like, yeah, we're putting this in your bio. (laughs) So usually my work in decolonizing therapy involves my community that this work would be nothing without any of them saying, hey, Jen, put that down. Or like, hey, say that. No, and you actually already touched upon this a little bit, you know, because one of the things I have felt, and you basically call me out already on this, because I make the connection between rage and harm all the time, which is why I have such a hard time feeling it. You mm-hmm. know, I'll feel grief all day long. But then when it comes to rage, it just, I almost, I almost don't know what to do with it, right? And it's such a complicated emotion for BIPOC folks because, you know, society is so much more comfortable with us in our rage, with us in our anger, right? I watch the news and you'll see all of the vocabularies when protests are going on, right? 
rage, fury, frustration. And I'm like, I'll wait for it. I'll wait for it. Oh no, it's gonna, it's not gonna come. No, they're not gonna put grief on there. Right? So it's like, how can we ourselves begin to decolonize our own relationship to rage? I think that's a beautiful question. And I think that one of the ways that we can decolonize our relationship to rage is to acknowledge that it is a complicated emotion that we're still learning about it, right? And that each of us have a different relationship to it. I think that part of that relationship is also based on our ancestry. And and I don't just mean like global ancestry, like, oh, I identify as El Salvadorian or identify as, you know, Guyanese. But I mean, like, if we can and when we can to unpack like, oh, what was our mothers or, you know, our, our aunties? Or if we know, if we know, because not all of us do, right? Not all of us have, were raised by them, but what was their relationship to anger and rage? What was their relationship to grief? I was working with someone as an example where she was explaining to me how her mother, she was very comfortable with raging, right? And father was an alcoholic. And this young woman was really beginning a drinking problem. And one of the most amazing individuals I've ever met in my life, but with the drinking, the rage would come out. And, you know, she would come into session week after week and be like, my father was in the building this weekend, Dr. Jen, right? <laughs> like, like my father was in the building, meaning that rage. And so, right. So we talked about for a long time, this wasn't a quick fix. This wasn't a 12 week right, right therapeutic relationship. We're talking years of not just talking, but feeling how does it feel to realize that the person the caregiver that you struggle with most your dad shows up in you that that some of his alcoholism shows up in you what does it feel like to deal with mom who is super silent and super depressed and super missing homeland and not documented and 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 and, and, right You, you get what i'm saying and so i'm saying all of this to say that i think it's important that in decolonizing our relationship to rage, we also pay attention to how our ancestry has informed this, but that we get to do it different. And that awareness and embodiment, not just like knowledge of the information, but embodying, right? And starting to feel it. As we know, we can't do that in a day. We can't do that in a weekend, right? Like, you know, it's a process of coming and going and showing up and then, ooh, this is too much, but I can't. And I, you know, and then letting others witness it in a healthy way, which is why I think that peer group that I was telling you about, you know, PEP, why it changed my life and so many others and why I think group work is so powerful. Community work is so healing and powerful because when we're ready to tell parts of our story, I don't think we ever tell our full, full story, (laughs) but when we're ready to tell parts of our, our story that feel a little bit more ripe or feel like they need to come out, a lot of shit comes up right <laughs> right and, and I, I just did it with with a, with a spiritual group of mine that I'm learning to trust on a deeper level and I shared some things that I don't think I'd ever said before like I knew it in my mind but I never said aloud blank blank and blank about this parent you know and what I know and they gave me the feedback that I sounded like I was like reading from something when I was talking about it 
that I was disconnected. Like I, like I was teaching, like, yes, this happened. And then that, and then, yeah. And then da, 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 and I see how this impacted me. And, and they let me know that, that when I was ready to feel it and whether rage would come up or deep, deep, deep grief. And I think it's probably the deep grief that needs to come up because I've raged all my life about it. <laughs> right. I, that they, they let me know that I could, that they would be there. Right. And every time I share a little bit more and I'm sharing this, not to talk about myself, but to say that there needs to be group collective healing and space holding in order to be in the process of decolonizing rage, because if not, it will continue to be co-opted by Eurocentric paradigms and by pathologizing, which is what I mean about decolonizing our mental health, (laughs) that we can't keep letting them these systems, right? The mental health industrial cloud that we can't keep letting it dictate what our healing and our messiness looks like. And the last thing I want to say about that example, whether about me or um, my long-term client is that in both cases, we needed witnessing of someone letting us know that it's okay to be enraged. And we needed real coping skills and exercises that would help us deal with our rage on a consistent basis, not when it was ready to pop off. Cause then that that's it, right? <laughs> right. Once my once my volcano has exploded, I'm not in my body. It's dissociative. It's traumatic. And so my work with people is like we don't want it to get there again or as little as possible in your lifetime, right? Like it may happen once or twice again in your life, but we don't want you to go to prison. We don't want you to be face down on the asphalt with the officer's boot on your neck, right? We don't want your kids to witness you get shoved up against a wall again for roughing up their mother. We don't want you to rough up their mother. We don't want you to be what your ancestry was. I need you to show up for all of us and all of your ancestry and all of your future generations. And I said that to people and I will continue to say it. And so I say this to say that this is healing work. This is healing work. We're coming to the end of our conversation here, but I can't let you go without asking you what brings you joy. I am reconnecting to what brings me joy over and over, right? What brings me joy are sometimes quiet days or quiet mornings, like slow mornings. I know that's, and it's changed from when I was like in my early thirties, right? Like what brings me joy are like slow mornings with connection with people I care about, space for my spiritual practices, not rushing brings me joy. (laughs) What brings me joy are conversations like this, where I feel like, we're seeing each other and we're hearing each other and there's something healing in what both of us are saying for the other. What brings me joy is looking up sometimes and seeing my adorable cat sunning in the sun and just like looking like pure bliss. And I think this is nature and that's me too. I need sunshine, like a reminder, like she's teaching me that I need to go out and get away from the screen, right? Um, And ultimately the ocean brings me joy. Dance brings me joy. 90s hip hop that is a bit ratchet and (laughs) (laughs) lets me embody, right? My like teenage and inner 20 raging kind of like I'm about itself. 
<laughs> brings me a lot of joy. And usually I do that now, like in my car, if I'm driving, right? Like I'm dropping some Biggie or like Mob Deep or something or Wu-Tang. Yeah. You, know, you know, and I would even play it sometimes around my students and they would be like, how do you know every word to these like ratchet ass songs? And I'm like, do you think I was always this like cute pillar of like patience? <laughs> I was young once too. <laughs> right, right. Um, and then lastly, I would say reading and books and writing and right, like being in, commun in community. And so being in places and spaces where it feels delicious to go deep and to look at our individual and collective shadows, that brings me joy as well. Well, this conversation has been an absolute joy. I just thank you for your time, for just the blessing that has been your presence today <laughs> and everything we've just learned and continue to learn from you. This work is so important and we are fans and we thank you. <laughs> I thank you. I thank you so much. Thank you for your patience. Again, truly thank you for talking about that emotion. Thank you for talking about that hitting grief. And I hope that through your podcast, I have no doubt that individuals will be getting to see that collectively we're still grieving. We just started grieving. Yeah, it's a whole thing. We haven't even begun to scratch the surface yet. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to Hidden Grief. If you like what you heard, please leave a review for our show on Apple Podcasts so more folks can find us. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Hidden Grief Pod and to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Today's episode was produced by me, Saran Sidime, and Hannah Barg, and the music you heard was from Blue Dot Sessions. Our beautiful logo was designed by Rachel Ellison at Bat Sarah Press. Our episode art was designed by Eve Bishop, Thank you to everyone who helped us launch this show. Melissa Guller, Lauren Friedman, and our loved ones. We could not have done this without you. We'll be back next week with a new episode. And in the meantime, remember, we grieve to make room for abundant joy. <laughs>